Well, good morning, Athens. First, it is good to be with you this morning, although after an anthem like that, I'm not sure there's any point of a sermon or anything. So we'll just get out of here early and beat the Baptist, huh? No. You're not quite that lucky this morning because we do have a word to be shared and a word to be heard from the Lord. We are in a sermon series that we began last Sunday in our season of Lent, the series called The Twelve, where we are taking a look at the lives of the twelve disciples, the closest companions of Jesus, and where we are discovering together what these lives, what their ministries, what they have to tell us today and how they can inform our lives this morning. And so this morning we are going to be talking about the disciple John. John is probably among the most well-known disciples to us, particularly because of the Gospel of John and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, his letters that we find in our New Testament. And all of these are traditionally attributed to this disciple of Jesus. So it would make sense that this morning, if we're going to talk about John, that we should turn to the Gospel of John except I don't always like to do things that make sense. And so this morning we're actually going to look at the Gospel of Mark because sometimes we can learn a lot about a person not from what they say about themselves, but what from others say about them. So we are going to be diving into Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Again, Mark 10, 35 through 45. So here now this reading of God's holy word. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized by the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right or the left, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have already been prepared. But when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But it is not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Immediately from this scripture, we learn a few important notes about this man, John. First, we learned that he was not an only child. He had a brother. And from the clues found throughout the Gospels, we believe that John was actually the youngest brother in this dynamic duo known as the Sons of Zebedee. This duo were fishermen, and both were among the earliest called disciples. 
And like we shared some last week, shared a bit of history with Peter even before they became disciples. So Peter, James, and John make up what a number of scholars like to call the inner circle. The inner circle among Jesus' disciples. This is because these were the guys that are, were around for some of Jesus' greatest moments, but also some of the most private moments. The three witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were there on the mountain at the transfiguration. They were present in the garden as Jesus was praying just before he was arrested. They ran to the tomb when they heard Jesus' body was missing. They had breakfast on a seashore side with Jesus after his resurrection. This inner three were there for some of the most powerful moments that both defined the life and ministry of Jesus and were somehow so intimate and private. That's what made them the inner three. But in my opinion, not only were the inner three the most present with Jesus, they were also the most chastised by Jesus. Every gospel contains stories after stories of one of these three, if not all of them together, not quite getting it right. Not quite understanding the point that Jesus is making. Not quite hitting it on the mark. Just last week, Pastor Jeremy shared with us the story of Peter. And it also included Peter's, well, very large fumble where, Peter had to, where Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And this week, it's John's turn. And so the brothers start off with this kind of funny statement. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And this has always been kind of a funny statement to me. It reminds me of a time where I was babysitting two brothers for an entire summer. And all summer long, these siblings would get into brotherly squabbles and some mischievous activity. If you have two sons, you know what these squabbles can look like. But one day I'm preparing lunch in the kitchen, and all of a sudden I notice it's quiet. Too quiet. You know that quiet, that silence that is actually quite loud. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the youngest brother appears, and his hands are behind his back, and he says, now, Natalie, before I say anything else, you have to promise to me you won't get mad. <laughs> now, what he didn't know is that I could see full well behind him the broken lamp that was from his mother's room that he was not supposed to be in, and so I quickly said, no deal. And this kind of reminds me of these brothers' question to Jesus, the statement that they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Trying to set Jesus up a bit. But in the grace-filled way of Jesus, instead of saying absolutely not, as I did, he responds to them with a question, a compassionate question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's a simple question, really. It's not all that different than questions we ask each other on a daily basis. If you go into a restaurant, your server might say to you, what can I get started for you today? 
If you go into the doctor's office, how can I help you today? Really, anywhere in the South, when you enter in, you're going to be welcomed with a warm smile, and you're going to be asked, what can I do for you? But this question coming from the lips of the Messiah might mean something quite different. When the Messiah asks, what do you want me to do for you, we think that there might be a pause for John and James. And I wonder if there was a moment where they thought to themselves about the person who was asking them this question. I wonder if they, for a moment, thought, perhaps I should tread a little more cautiously here. Because you see, in the moment right before John and James asked this question, Jesus said, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will be handed over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Jesus, moments before, is predicting his own gruesome death, and their response is, Hey, Jesus, we have something we want you to do for us today. I want to believe they really thought about the response in this moment. I really want to believe that they thought this fully through, but Scripture seems to indicate that they really just blurted it out. Let us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Basically asking Jesus to promise to them that they are not only his favorite in this life, but they are his favorite in the life to come. Now, Scripture doesn't say which brother asked this question, but I personally have to assume it was John. I mean, doesn't it seem like something the youngest sibling would ask? To secure in front of all the disciples that he was, in fact, the favorite? I mean, think about this. Older siblings normally just assume they're the favorite, So they don't need anyone else to confirm that for them. We middles, we understand our place in the world. (laughs) But the youngest siblings, the youngest have confidence and just enough audacity to publicly confirm that they are the favorite. I don't know if you're a youngest sibling or if you have younger siblings, but I've got a younger sibling. I'm married to the youngest sibling. My best friend is a youngest sibling, and all of them will gleefully tell you that it is their burden to carry, to be the most lovable in the family. And there's some scripture proof that John thought he was pretty lovable. In his very own gospel, John exclusively refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, it's normal at this time period that if you were writing something and you needed to include something about yourself, you wouldn't necessarily use uh, the first person to, to refer to yourself. You would come up with a nickname or some other way to express yourself. So John had a lot of options here. He could have just gone with John. He could have gone with, I don't know, one of the many disciples Jesus loved, or among the disciples that Jesus loved, but instead he goes with T-H-E, the disciple that Jesus loved. And this disciple that Jesus loved wanted to guarantee his spot at the top of the list. But it's sort of a bizarre turn, even for the youngest, isn't it? 
Jesus predicts his own death, and John and James basically ignore what he's saying so that they can focus on which among them will get the glory. And it perplexes me a bit. Why? Why would this be what they ask Jesus as he's trying to prepare them for his own death? I'd like to think that if I were there and I had a follow-up question to Jesus, I might ask what he means by this whole three days later he will rise thing. I'd like to think that maybe I suggest instead of setting our face towards Jerusalem, we pick a different direction and maybe go on a beach vacation or something. But perhaps these disciples had remembered the conversation with Peter earlier. And they remembered that if they tried to get in the way of what Jesus has set out to do, his purpose here on earth, that that's how you get called Satan. So maybe they saw this as their moment to take a different approach. Maybe. Or... Maybe they wanted to secure their place because they were a little bit afraid. I have to wonder if at this moment, as much as it seems like this is vanity or power maneuvering for them, I have to wonder if some of this isn't at least driven by the smallest bit of fear. At this point in their journey, Jesus has now predicted his death multiple times. He has said moments earlier that he will be arrested, spit on, beaten, and killed. And though we know the disciples often miss the point, I think these statements would be disconcerting for people who have left everything behind to follow this Messiah, to follow their Savior. So perhaps they weren't really a power-hungry duo, but perhaps they just wanted to feel safe. Perhaps in the midst of everything happening and the uncertainty of life, they just wanted to feel secure. And I think it would be perfectly normal for them to be afraid of the unknown. We can relate to that, I think. We can relate to this fear of the unknown that we experience in our lives. And it causes me to wonder, if Jesus was sitting right next to you in the pew this morning, and he turned and he asked you the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? How would you respond? If Jesus was in front of you asking, what do you want me to do for you, what would you say? Maybe you'd ask him for healing, to heal you, to heal a loved one from a disease or a sickness. Maybe you'd ask for healing of a broken relationship or healing of a deeply seated wound that has left you angry or resentful. Maybe, like Jarius, a man stricken with grief at the loss of his child, you would like to ask Jesus to bring back a loved one you deeply miss, even for just one more hug or one more chance to say goodbye. 
Maybe you would ask for your child to be relieved from their battle with anxiety. Maybe you would ask for a better job that could really pay all of the bills and allow you to care for every need and every want of your family. Maybe you would ask Jesus a question about the world that you've always wondered about, or you would ask him to solve a problem that you see plaguing our society today. If Jesus was next to you asking, what do you want for me to do for you, what would you say? I think many of our answers, like John, come from the depths of our souls. And they also might be informed by our own fears and our own worries. And I want to tell you this morning, that's okay. Because Jesus knows this about us. And he knows this about our humanly experience. And so when John and James asked for these positions of prestige and power, Jesus doesn't cut them down. Instead, he responds with compassion. And he reminds them of why he is here, what he is called to do, and what they are called to do. Jesus says, you must remember, John, whoever wants to be first in the kingdom must be the servant of all. For I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus' answer is reminding John that he is missing the point of why Jesus has come. And he's missing the point of why we are all followers of Jesus. Jesus reminds John and the disciples and us this morning that the point of following Jesus is not for power or for position. It's not for getting what we most want or most desire. The purpose of following Jesus is to love and to love deeply and to make that love apparent by the way we serve others. The scripture doesn't say how John responds in that moment with this realization. But I have to wonder if this realization of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really came for isn't a part of the entire gospel narrative of the book of John. A gospel where it does not begin with Jesus' birth and kings coming to visit. It doesn't begin with people understanding the full power of who Jesus will be, but a gospel instead that begins with love and light the only things that can stand against our own fear and our own darkness. Jesus had full control of his telling of the life of Jesus. I'm sorry, John had full control of his telling of the life of Jesus, but John chose to write about love. Above all else, above any difficulty, hardship, pain, fear, or darkness, John reminds us of love and begins with this simple phrase, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. As we recognized in our time of prayer this morning, our community has experienced great darkness this past week. We have experienced collective grief and fear and pain from the unimaginable losses of two students on our UGA campus. 
Our students, our faculty, our staff, our community members, and our church are all experiencing a variety of emotions and responses to these tragedies. Some of us gathered here this morning have had the difficult but entrusted responsibility of responding on the front lines. And you have done so with strength and with grace. Others of us have felt uneasy and unsure of what this means for us as students at this university. Some of us have felt overwhelming concern for our city and for our school. And many of us have been left feeling helpless when considering the realities of evil in this world. And we have all felt pain and grief. So when we look to Jesus this morning, sitting in the realities of the difficulties we face as a community and the difficulties we face as individuals that we feel so very powerless to. And Jesus sits there and compassionately asks us, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I wonder what it would look like for our answer to be. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Help us to love, to love each other, to love the broken and the hurting and the afraid. Help us, Jesus. Help us to be light. Help us to be light in the darkness that we're feeling and shine light into the lives of each other. Help us, Jesus. There are moments in our lives where this is all we can do and all we can say is help us, Jesus, and trust and believe that he has been faithful in the past. He is faithful now, and he will be faithful in the future. So if there's one final thought that I think John would share with us this morning, it comes from his gospel. It's words of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples just before his arrest, just before the most confusing and heartbreaking and overwhelming time that he will experience. A reminder from Jesus for us this morning. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give readily to you. And I do not give as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.